Welcome back to Counting to Five, a podcast about the United States Supreme Court. I'm Mike, your host. This is our weekly YouTube live stream being broadcast live Thursday, March 22nd, 2018 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. This live stream will also be posted as an episode of the Counting to Five audio podcast. If you're watching live, uh, please feel free to ask questions in the YouTube live chat at any time, and I'll try to uh, monitor it and periodically answer any questions as they come up. And in these weekly live streams, uh, we try to keep up to date with the latest Supreme Court news. And this has been a busy week. There's a lot to cover today. So briefly, um, here's what I plan to uh, cover. On Monday this week, the court granted one new case that will be argued next term, most likely in the court's October session. Um, so we'll talk about that. The court also issued some notable orders in several other cases, and we'll talk about each of those. On Tuesday and Wednesday this week, the court issued a total of three new opinions in argued cases, and I'll be discussing each of these new opinions. Um, at the end, uh, finally, next week, um, from Monday through Wednesday, the court is going to be hearing oral arguments in five more cases. This is the second week of the court's March oral arguments, and I'll, I, I plan to briefly preview each of those five cases that will be heard next week. Um, but the first thing, before, um, before we get to any of that, I want to give a brief uh, update on uh, recent death penalty stay applications. Um, and because of the, the number of cases I need to cover today, I'm going to try and keep things brief. But if you are watching live, feel free to ask questions. I'm happy to go into more detail if there are specific cases or questions that people have. But let's get started. So we'll dive into the death penalty stay applications. Um, really briefly, in last week's live stream, I discussed the application to stay the execution of Carlton, Carlton Gary, who was convicted of being the stalking strangler serial killer of Columbus, Columbus Georgia. And as of the start of last week's live stream, the court had not yet ruled on his stay application. Uh, during last week's live stream, the court issued its order denying the stay with no noted dissents or written opinion. Uh, so Gary was executed later uh, last Thursday night. Um, if you're interested in more details about Carlton Gary or his legal claims, you can listen to last week's uh, pod weekly uh, live stream episode for that. Uh, but moving on to new um New uh, matters. This week, um, on Tuesday, March 20th, uh, the execution of Russell Bucklew um, of, in Missouri was, uh, was, was scheduled to occur. Now, uh, Bucklew had been convicted of murdering his ex-girlfriend's uh, new boyfriend in front of that man's two young children, uh, one of whom he also attempted to kill. And then he, his, he had uh, additional uh, violent crimes uh, immediately after or related to this attack. Um, and he, he was convicted and sentenced to, uh, to, uh, to death. And he brought a claim, uh, a cruel and unusual punishment claim, um, about the, uh, the state's, uh, planned lethal injection. Um, and it was a, uh, arguing that the lethal injection was cruel and unusual punishment specifically as applied to him because of, um, his specific medical circumstances. And, uh, the, the issue is that, uh, Bucklew suffers from a, a rare disease known as cavernous hemangioma, hemangioma. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it involves, uh, according to the briefing, uh, unstable blood-filled tumors in his head, neck, and throat. And these tumors easily rupture and 
bleed and includes a throat tumor that obstructs his breathing. Um, now, according to the briefing, the, the stress of the lethal injection and the breathing difficulties caused by it will likely cause his throat tumor to burst, causing him to painfully suffocate and choke on his own blood. Now, that, that's uh, the argument. So, so um, according to his, his attorneys, this uh, lethal injection, um, specifically as applied to him, would result in a cruel and unusual punishment. Um, there are some specific legal issues involved in here. Uh, under a, uh, so, a previous uh, Supreme Court precedence, um, a challenger to a, uh, a form of um, execution as cruel and unusual uh, is, is normally required to propose an adequate alternative method that could be used that would not, uh, that would, that would, uh, not be cruel and unusual. This is a controversial element of some of the court's recent cases, and it's been criticized by some as it's kind of grotesque to require these uh, condemned inmates to propose the method of their own execution. Um, but the, uh, the this case raised some questions about how, how this how this the uh, alternative method needs to be proved, and whether this should even apply to the, this kind of very specific as applied challenge. Um, that doesn't apply to the, that isn't challenging this method of execution across the board as to everyone. Um, Tuesday night, the court granted the uh, stay application. So this execution was stayed. It did not go forward. Um, it was a five justices uh, who voted for the stay. It was the, it was along um, traditional ideological lines with the, the four uh, more liberal justices plus justice Kennedy as the swing justice making up the five justice majority and the, uh, the other four more conservative justices that's chief, Just- chief justice Roberts and justices Thomas Alito and Gorsuch um, all dissenting uh, as is typical in these type of uh, orders. There was no, there were no opinions or explanations. Uh, there's just the notation of who was, who was dissenting. Now, what does this mean? This is a stay pending the court's decision on the cert petition. So pending a decision on the petition um, to take this case up as part of the court's um, full uh, calendar. Um, so that, that the, the court will still have to go ahead and uh, go forward and, and, and consider specifically whether this case should go on its docket. There's no guarantee that just because they stay a case, they will, they will necessarily grant that case and, uh, and hear it. Um, but it's a, it's a, a good sign. It takes five justices to grant a stay and indicates there's at least five justices who at least think this petition is worth consideration, um, enough that they would stay the execution. And it only takes four justices to choose to actually hear a case. So, um, so there's a good chance that this case may in the future end up on the court's, uh, full docket. Um, but, uh, we'll have to wait and see on that one. So, uh, moving on, um, to some of the, uh, uh, new orders that came out this week. On Monday, um, as part of the, the court's, uh, orders that were issued in various cases early Monday morning, the court granted one more case, uh, um, for its calendar for next year. And this case was called Nielsen versus Priap. And this is a, uh, immigration case about the mandatory detention of, um, criminal aliens. This is, uh, people who are being, um, uh, held for, uh, for deep, or, are subject to deportation proceedings due to uh, um, uh, commission uh, commission of a crime that uh, that subjects them to uh, to deportation. And um, the what what the what's at issue is uh, some particular language. Uh, it's it's kind of a, a very it's, it's kind of an odd argument, but there's a a particular provision of the immigration law. It's uh, section twelve twenty six c that um, basically requires DHS to detain um, 
any alien convicted of certain crimes upon their release from prison. And here's the, the key language. I'm just going to read some of the key language that's being disputed here. It says, uh, the secretary, this is the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, shall take into custody any alien who is deportable by reason of having committed certain offenses when when the alien is released without regard to whether the alien is released on parole, supervised release, or probation, and without regard to whether the alien may be arrested or imprisoned again for the same offense. So it says, the secretary shall take into custody any alien who, then describes certain conditions, when that alien is released. That, and it's this when that alien is released language that's uh, causing the 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 disagreement. The uh, the uh, attorneys for the immigrants in this case are arguing that that provision uh, means that this the, this instruction for the secretary to take aliens into custody applies only um, at the moment that these immigrants are released from prison. And if DHS fails to do so, and these these immigrants are released from prison and go back to their lives, um, that this provision just has no application. Uh, the government argues. Uh, it sees this quite differently and argues that that when the alien released is just describing when that duty attaches. So when they're released, that's when the government begins to have the duty to take them into custody, but that that duty doesn't disappear just because the government doesn't immediately uh, do so. Um, and the, the immigrants have made s- several arguments. They're, they're arguing that the, the, the purpose of the statute was, was, uh, the government only wanted mandatory, uh, Congress was, was providing for mandatory detention when there would be this continuous chain of custody. Um, and it, it, the intent wasn't that, you know, if, if immigrants are allowed to return to their families and go back to their lives and they may be out for months or even years before the government starts proceeding against them, uh, to have them removed, um, it, in that sort of circumstance, they, there wasn't this anticipation that they would be mandatorily um, detained. And the government, on their other hand, uh, argues that that uh, this this is just uh, argues that it's a implausible reading of the text, and and also that um, it results in irrational distinctions based on just the fortuity of whether the immigrant is immediately detained. Uh, so that's that's the basic arguments in that case. And again, that'll that'll be coming up on next year's term, the term starting in um, in October. Of, the, of this uh, of, of 2018, and so far the court has uh, granted seven cases for next term. So far, now their their target in order to fill the court's fall argument calendar, they would need to um, grant about 34 cases before they break for the summer at the end of June. So uh, we're keeping an eye on on further grants and, and see the last few years they've had. Uh, 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 a bit, they've been a bit below those numbers and have had uh, light fall terms, uh, fall calendars. So it's we're, it's in, interesting to see whether that happens again this year or whether they uh, ramp things up and start granting more cases before they break for the summer. Um, also in the Monday orders list, there were a few other significant orders. Um, so most of the... Uh, uh, in in these orders lists, when the court puts out an orders list after one of their conferences, one of the uh, the most uh, um, common thing that that uh, occurs in these orders lists is um, denials of uh, of petitions for certiorari. Those the formal petitions for the court to hear the case. Um, the court, uh, if you've if you've uh, 
um, been following the court, you may know that the court gets somewhere in the range of uh, six to seven thousand petitions a year in recent years, and in recent years has only been accepting somewhere in the ballpark of maybe seventy cases. It's even less this year, but in that ballpark of seventy cases, so it's somewhere around one in a hundred um, gets accepted, and the rest are all denied. And usually, these denials are just a um, just a, a one-line notation that just lists the name of the case and, sa- and says uh, that the petition is denied, and, that, and that's all, and there's no explanation or anything like that. But occasionally, you get a little bit more, and that's what happened in one case on Monday's list. There was a case called Boyd v. Dunn, and there was just a one-line notation from that Justice Sotomayor was dissenting from denying the, the, the petition, meaning she wanted to take this case and is dissenting from the court's uh, broader decision not to take So I'm sorry I lost the connection briefly, um, but I've returned. I uh, hope you're sticking with me, still with me here. Um, and when I lost the connection, I was talking about uh, Boyd v. Dunn, and this was a notation on um, Monday's order list, uh, a dissent from the denial of uh, a case where Justice Sotomayor issued, uh, citing uh, a, a, a similar dissent she had issued in a, a, an opinion dissenting she had issued in a uh, case from last year. Um, and this case was a, is a challenge to Alabama's lethal injection protocol. And uh, I, I mentioned earlier when I was uh, um, referring to the the death penalty case uh, that the court had uh, stayed earlier this week, I mentioned um, the the requirement that a uh, someone challenging a death uh, penalty on cruel and unusual punishment grounds needs to propose an adequate alternative. Um, here, the uh, the Alabama um, uh, condemned inmate had proposed the use of either firing squad or hanging as alternatives to the lethal injection protocol. And the issue in the case is, is really is what's the standard for determining the uh, what counts as a feasible alternative. And Justice Sotomayor had dissented from denying a case last year and written an opinion about this, and she just cites that previous opinion in, in uh, dissenting from this case this week. Um, there were also a few uh, uh, longer opinions issued related to certain uh, petitions. Um, there were three opinions issued on Monday relating to opinions. Now, two of these um, opinions were, were what's referred to as a, a statement respecting the denial of certiorari. Now, these are not dissents. So these are not justices who are, who are saying they disagree with the decision not to take the case, but they wanted to make a statement, say, uh, say certain things about the decision not to take a case. And so, so I'll discuss each of those quickly. There's one case um, called uh, Campbell v. Ohio, and Justice Sotomayor issued a statement uh, respecting the denial of this case. Now, this uh, case was uh, the, the Campbell, the uh, um, the defendant in this case, had pleaded guilty to uh, aggrava- aggravated murder and was sentenced to life without parole. Um, now, he had tried to appeal the sentence, arguing that the, the court had failed to balance the aggravating and mitigating factors in determining his sentence as required under Ohio law. Um, however, there's a provision of Ohio law that said that Sentences imposed for aggravated murder or murder are not subject to review. Um, and due to that provision, the appeal was dismissed. Um, it was uh, held that he had no right to appeal. Um, Justice Sotomayor 
uh, argued that this raises um, that, that there are some real constitutional concerns uh, with the sentence due to the seriousness of life without parole. Um, notes that uh, the Supreme Court has uh, restricted life without parole sentences in certain contexts, specifically for juvenile offenders, and that there's a real um, Eighth Amendment cruel and unusual punishment concern here. Um, but uh, she agrees with the court's decision not to take this particular case because the defendant here had failed to make these constitutional claims in state court um, and hadn't really framed the issues, uh, the, the the real issues as Justice Sotomayor sees them. So that's that's uh, just a, a interesting glance into one case that uh, um, Justice Sotomayor is is obviously looking for a, a good case uh, where she would like to take that issue, but this is not the right case. Now the other case was a case called Hidalgo v. Arizona. And this case, there was a statement respecting the denial of the petition. Um, this was written by Justice Breyer, but joined also by Justices Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Now, this was a somewhat high-profile case that got a lot of um, notice in uh, in in legal circles. And the the case, because the case was uh, was it was broadly just challenging, flat out challenging the constitutionality of capital punishment, um, and had 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 um, specifically. Uh, as one of the questions it was asking the court to review was was just a broadly um, challenging the constitutionality of cap- capital punishment. However, this particular um, opinion, uh, the statement respecting the denial, focuses only on a narrower question, on a different question that this case had presented. It doesn't touch the 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 big question about the constitutionality of capital punishment generally, and focuses only on a specific question about Arizona's particular scheme. And this relates to. The, the 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 issue is that um, based on certain Supreme Court precedents, uh, the, the court has said that in order to constitutionally have a capital punishment scheme, capital punishment basically has to be restricted to a subset of the most culpable murderers, um, and and this requires uh, states to have procedures to basically narrow the category of murderers down and down to only those who are kind of most culpable. And one method of doing that is to provide for aggravating factors and to say that only a murderer who who also has at least one aggravating factor as defined under that state's law can be eligible for the death penalty. Um, The issue here is the claim is that Arizona has so many aggravating factors and they're so broad that virtually every murderer um, ends up being an aggravating, uh, ends up being a death eligible murder. And they had specific, um, based on public records requests, they had specific statistics. Um, they had gotten data or information on 866 capital murders and found out that out of those 866, 856 of them had at least one aggravating factor. And that, to do the math, is 98.8%. So the argument is here. The Arizona system, even though they have these aggravating factors, isn't doing this sort of narrowing to the most culpable um, defendant or most culpable, um, you know, convicted murderers, uh, like the court says it's supposed to. Now, despite this, the uh, these these um, Justice Breyer and the the other uh, three justices who joined him in this opinion, they agree um, that. Uh, in this particular case, uh, it wasn't the right case for the court to take. Uh, and the, the reason for this was just they, they said that there was insufficient uh, an in, insufficient evidentiary record created below in this case. They said that this, this is the type of case that really needs more expert input, maybe empirical work, a detailed examination of these 866 cases to, to see if they're representative. Um, but clearly they expect a future case to present this type of evidence. 
Um, so, so that's, that was an interesting result on that case. Now, the third, uh, opinion on Monday relating to, uh, one of the denials was a dissent from the, uh, denial of a petition. And this was in a case called Garco Construction v. Spear. And it was Justice Thomas dissenting, joined by Justice Gorsuch. And this case, uh, it, it, this is about a uh, something. It's known as our deference. That's spelled A U E R, but pronounced our deference. And it's a uh, it's a rule of uh, administrative law. And so this is uh, relating to regulations that are um, uh, regulations that are passed by uh, administrative agencies. And our deference that this this rule, uh, this court created rule, says that when an agency regulation is unclear, is vague or ambiguous or, or in some way kind of way open to, uh, to differing interpretations that courts should always defer to a reasonable interpretation by the agency of its regulation. So if the regulation is vague and the agency explains in some other form what that, uh, regulation is supposed to mean, so how to, how to resolve the ambiguity or vagueness, that courts should defer to that, um, interpretation. Um, and proponents of this uh, deference, they argue that this is kind of a, a common sense uh, approach. The agencies are the ones with the on-the-ground expertise. They really understand these areas that they're that they're um, regulating, and they have they have the the uh, uh, like I said, the expertise and also the the um, wealth of data and information that that would be useful for um, creating these kind of gap filling. Uh, measures and also the same reason that Congress wants agencies to write regulations in the first place um, explains why they would want these same agencies to engage in this kind of clarification and gap filling. Now, opponents of this uh, our deference they argue that um, that what what this actually creates is an incentive for agencies to use vague and general language in the regulations to give them flexibility to change the their interpretation later on and this results in it undermines the guidance and fair notice uh, that regulations are supposed to require and also the, the opponents argue that this allows agencies to do uh, an end run around the procedural requirements for regulation so normally uh, regulations. In order for an agency to, to promulgate regulations, they have to go through cer- certain pre- specific procedures. Um, there's a notice and comment process where they have to publish their proposed rules and uh, allow comments from the public and then respond to those comments. Um, and also there's some very uh, distinct differences in, in the legal weight given to regulations which have gone through this whole process and other forms of non-binding guidance when the agency just kind of gives guidance that isn't an actual regulation. But here, that kind of gets blurred together. If that guidance is in an area where the the regulation is arguably vague or unclear, then that guidance now under this doctrine becomes binding and kind of doesn't end run around these these uh, um, requirements. So, um, it's, it's a, it's a controversial doctrine and it has a long history. This, uh, what's now often referred to as our deference used to be referred to as Seminole Rock deference after a case from 1945 called Bowles v. Seminole Rock and Sand Company. Um, but the our comes from a case called our v. Robbins, a 1997 case that was a majority opinion, a strong opinion written by Justice Scalia. Um, but later in his life, Justice Scalia later became a fierce opponent of our deference. Um, and uh, he supposedly once referred to our, which he himself wrote, as one of the court's worst opinions. He became um, so opposed to it in later years. And his critique later gained traction with some of the other judges, uh, justices. So 
the the basic issue in this case was that the Barco Construction had uh, uh, entered into a contract to do work on an Air Force base, um, but the base later interpreted uh, its base access policy in a way that excluded certain subcontractors and basically pushed up the costs for Garco. Uh, and so they brought this challenge uh, arguing against that. And um, Thomas really criticizes this, saying that this is the, the kind of uh, – this, this was an opportunist, basically an opportunistic interpretation of a regulation to unilaterally, retroactively change contract terms, um, and and argues that the court should should take this case uh, to reconsider the our doctrine. Um, and again, in this particular case, only Thomas and Gorsuch uh, signed on to this opinion. In um, as in Thomas cites in his. Um, in his uh, opinion, he cites previous uh, op- uh, opinions of the court by various justices that have cast doubt or, or called for reconsideration of the hour deference. And fully five members of the court um, have have suggested that this should, at least should be reconsidered. So it does seem like an issue that um, uh, will likely return to the court, and the court will likely uh, at some point be uh, be looking at more closely, but uh, but not this time. Um, moving on, later on Monday, there was a, uh, a case, uh, this is Torzai v. League of Women Voters of Pennsylvania. Now this, um, there was a, a application for a stay to the Supreme Court that was denied Monday afternoon. Now this case is about the Pennsylvania redistricting litigation, and this was a, a state court challenge to Pennsylvania's congressional districts, challenging them as partisan gerrymanders. Now, you may be aware that there are a couple of partisan gerrymandering cases in the Supreme Court this term, and I'm going to talk about one of them a little later um, tonight. But this was a, a claim that was brought in Pennsylvania state court, bringing claims only under the Pennsylvania state constitution. Now, that went up to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, which found these districts unconstitutional and required the legislature to uh, um, create a, a new redistricting plan. When the legislature did not create a new plan by the deadline set by the court, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court adopted its own redistricting cl- um, plan. Now, that's what's at issue here. The, the state state court decisions, state courts are usually the last um, word on issues of state law, including state constitutions. So normally you think a state court con- uh, decision that relies on the state constitution would be final and beyond review from the Supreme Court, and this wouldn't be expected to go anywhere, and indeed it didn't. But the challenge was brought here saying that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, in its interpretation and its actions, was actually violating the federal constitution by um, usurping uh responsibilities that are specifically assigned to legislatures and basically uh, just usurping legislative power in violation from the constitution. Um, and this stay was essential because of the beginning of primary season. So uh, Tuesday, just a few days ago was the deadline in Pennsylvania for primary applications for candidates. Um, and it'd be hugely disruptive to make changes after the election process is already underway. And the Supreme court has, um, ha- has basically a strong, um, aversion to any last minute election changes. Um, so this stay was essential for this to go forward. And now that the stay has been denied, those maps are likely just are that, that that's likely done. And those maps are, are set for this, uh, this election season. So that was a, that was kind of a highly anticipated case there. And it demonstrates that regardless of what the Supreme court does on, um, the partisan gerrymandering cases that has this term, the state courts and state constitutions may be another avenue for um, for uh, seeking legal redress for uh, allegedly uh, unconstitutional uh, gerrymandering. Um, one other uh, issue, there's there's uh, 
two cases here. The, the, the court, the court, uh, in recent years has had a shrinking docket. Um, if you go back to the 1980s, the court, uh, was uh, routinely hearing, uh, upwards of 150 cases a term. And that, um, declined over the past few decades until, um, recent, in recent years, it's been more in the 70 to 80 range. And in, in the very recent years, there have been multiple cases down in the 60s. This year, the case had had only 64 cases on its argument calendar for this this term, which is extremely low by historical standards. Now, one of those cases has now uh, now gone away uh, as of uh, earlier today. It was a case I, I discussed this a little bit last week. It's called Salt River Pro- Salt River Project Agricultural Improvement and Power District v. Tesla Energy Operations. Now, this case. It, the the underlying issue is a technical procedural issue related to government immunity um, from certain antitrust actions. Uh, the details aren't that important, but what had happened previously was the parties to the case had filed a joint letter with the court indicating that they were deep into this, uh, settlement talks and they were hoping to settle the case, which would you know, uh, remove it from the court's calendar. Um, as a result, the court had moved this case, which was previously scheduled to be argued in March, it's supposed to be scheduled uh, this um, this past Monday. It was moved to the April calendar. But what happened this week is on Tuesday, the parties filed with the court a stipulation of dismissal, basically saying they were agreeing to dismiss the case. And then earlier today, the case, the case was in fact dismissed and is now gone from the court's docket. So that knocks us down to only 63 cases. I believe that's tied for the lowest caseload in modern history. And there's one more case that may disappear from the court's docket, and this is U.S. v. Microsoft. And that's a case that I discussed it uh, previously on this podcast, but um, it's a case about the government's access under a statute called the Stored Communications Act to data that's stored outside of the United States. In this case, it was Microsoft uh, storing uh, users' email in, in uh, on a server in Ireland, and the government was trying to get it. It was argued on February 27th this year. Um, however, what happened is there's been a lot of uh, there's been action in Congress about a, a potential legislative um, solutions to this issue of when can the government access data that's stored outside the United States, and as part of the draft omnibus spending bill that was released yesterday, this is a monster bill, a two thousand plus page bill with the, uh, more than a trillion dollars in in, uh, in spending. Um, part of one of the many many items that was incorporated into this omnibus bill was uh, something known as the Cloud Act, which was a bill that had been pending in Congress that explicitly allows access to data stored outside the U.S., but adds certain procedural protections um, so that the challenges can be brought to uh, to getting this data. It's uh, This has a lot of support. It was supported both by the Department of Justice and by a number of major technology companies, um, though some privacy advocates had still expressed concerns about it. But there was a lot of expectation that this was a likely um, uh, likely statute that would eventually get passed. Well, there was this was included in the omnibus spending uh, bill that this morning was passed by the House uh, and is expected to pass the Senate and be signed by tomorrow. Um, if this uh, if this does happen, then this will likely immediately have an impact on the U.S. v. Microsoft case. This puts a new legal standard in play for access to foreign stored records, and uh, probably the court would end up remanding this case down to the lower court to reconsider um, to you know consider the effect of this new law and whether that changes its uh, inter- its uh, um, changes the analysis or the, the results in this case. If that happens, that would reduce the court to only sixty two opinions and argued cases for this term. So it remains to be seen if that if that if that um, Cloud Act passes, uh, and and whether uh, um, what and whether the court dismisses that or sends that case back down, um, but we'll see. 
No. Moving on, um, the court also issued three new opinions uh, this week, three new opinions in argued cases. They issued uh, one opinion on Tuesday and two opinions on Wednesday this week. That brings the total um, for the term to 16 out of, as I said, 63 or maybe 62 total cases. So that means we're expecting another 47 or maybe 46 more cases by the end of June. Um so there's still a lot of opinions to come. Now, none of these three that came out this week are any of the high-profile, highly anticipated cases, um, but there's some interesting things in here, so I'm going to run through each of them brief, very briefly. The first one is a case called Cyan, Inc., the uh, Beaver County Employees Retirement Fund. And this is a, uh, a securities law case, and it was a unanimous opinion written by Justice Kagan. Um, the basic, the background in this case was... Um, it's a little complicated, but the issue here is um, the uh, federal law that allows for secure, uh, um, securities fraud uh, actions is known as the Securities Act of 1933. Um, under that law, you can bring these federal these um, federal actions in either federal court or state court. Um, However, o- over the years, uh, there's been uh, concern from from Congress over the extent of class action litigation and attempts to kind of rein in class action litigation some, and there have been a few amendments to uh, the Securities Act of 1933. Um, and the, 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 the first one was in, in 1995, there was a uh, act called the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act, um, which created a number of amendments to the 1933 act, including um, that, that made it uh, harder to uh, to to bring these cases. Um, in response to that, uh, plaintiffs started filing these. The class action plaintiffs in securities fraud cases started responding by filing state law actions. So now, um, in, in many areas of the law, that uh, there are both state and federal. Um, laws that cover some of the same conduct and plaintiffs often have a choice of bringing a law, a claim under federal law, under state law, or under both. Um, and this is one of those areas where, where both state and federal uh, law were available to plaintiffs. So plaintiffs began filing more uh, state actions in state court. And there were advantages both in terms of the law being used, the state law, and to being in state court. Many plaintiffs, uh, especially in certain jurisdictions, feel that they have more uh, sympathetic judges and juries in state court than they get in federal court and like to be in state court if uh, if possible. Um, Congress reacted to this, uh, this, this, uh, this, um, <clears throat> this move to state law actions. Congress reacted to it by passing in 1998 something known as the Securities Litigation Uniform Standards Act, or SLUSA, um, which made some more various amendments to the 1933 Act. And the key one that was being argued over in this case was that one provision of the Act had prohibited um, securities fraud class actions under state law for securities that were referred to as, uh, for what were referred to as covered class actions, which were uh, certain class actions involving securities listed on a national exchange. So this was uh, basically removing the ability to bring um, c- certain actions under state law when they related to these uh, nationally traded uh, um, securities. Um, now, um, the, the where where the issue came in is a different provision of this uh, SLUSA, the 1998 amendment, um, referred to the concurrent jurisdiction of the state courts. That means when you, you can bring a federal action, an action under the federal 1933 Act, either under state court or federal court. 
And it said that <clears throat> state courts uh, retained this concurrent jurisdiction. So they, they do have concurrent jurisdiction, meaning they can hear these federal claims. And then it said, this is the language, except as provided in Section 77P of this title with respect to covered class actions. Um, and there was a disagreement over what that did. Now, the 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 uh, company in this case, the Cyan, they um, they argued here that what this did was it meant that everything that was considered a covered class action, uh, defined as a covered class action, um, under this uh, was now uh, removed from the jurisdiction of the state courts, and that would include these federal law claims. Where previously, if you had a federal law claim, you could bring it in either federal or state court. Uh, the company argued, "Well, this says it's, uh, it makes an exception for these covered class actions, so that takes them out of uh, state court." Um, the the court disagreed with that interpretation and said, "No, actually, when it says." except as provided in section 77P, that as provided has to refer to a limitation um, to uh, the jurisdiction of state court. And that's a reference back to the prohibition on state law class actions. So it's just basically saying that um, we've, it, it, it's just basically making consistent and reiterating that you can't anymore bring these state law actions uh, for these uh, um, securities uh, listed on a national exchange. Um, so th- that's the, that was a, that was a, a win for, um, uh, these, the securities law class action plaintiffs in, in this particular case. Uh, moving on the next case, this is uh, one of the two cases on Wednesday was a case called Marinello v. United States. Now this case was decided, uh, seven to two, uh, Justice Breyer wrote, wrote the opinion for the majority and the two was a, a dissent by Justice Thomas joined by Justice Alito. Now, this was an issue about obstruction of justice uh, in the uh, the criminal uh, tax code. In the tax code, um, the the defendant uh, here, uh, a man named Marinello, was indicted in 2012 for several criminal tax law violations. And the the list of things he's accused to do is quite lengthy. He was accused of, among other things, failing to maintain corporate books and records, failing to provide his tax accountant with complete and accurate tax information, destroying business records, hiding income, paying employees with cash, various things. Um, And he was charged with a number of of different um, uh, accounts, but one of them was uh, corruptly obstructing or impeding or endeavoring to obstruct or rep- impede the due administration of this title, with this title referring to the Internal Revenue Code, the tax code. Um, the issue here was, in order to obstruct or impede uh, under the statute, does he? Did he have to know? Did he have to have no- knowledge of an ongoing investigation into his company or his actions? Um, the jury instructions given to the jury did not require them to find that he had any sort of knowledge of an ongoing investigation. Um, and so the, the, the argument, the government had argued that that wasn't necessary under, under this, as long as he was doing something that was obstructing or impeding administration of the tax code, that was enough. Um, but the, the opinion by Justice Breyer argues that, that no, in fact, um, this provision, uh, should be interpreted to only apply to a uh, a proceeding, a formal proceeding um, that the IRS is is uh, involved in, and not just the tax code generally. Um, and he, he uh, Justice Breyer's opinion refers to the location of this uh, provision in uh, in in the uh, the tax code, and that sections around it are, are dealing with formal IRS procedures, and refers to uh, House and Senate um, reports. 
uh, when this, uh, when this was passed that, that the examples they give are, are directed at corruption, directed at federal agents involved in, in investigations. Um, and all, it makes various other arguments, including that numerous misdeme- misdemeanors in the Internal Revenue Code uh, would could be effectively converted into felonies by this provision because these misdemeanors would also constitute obstruction of the administration of the tax code. Um, and and the ultimate test that Breyer put down, uh, this is the language, it says the government must show a nexus between the defendant's conduct and a particular administrative proceeding, such as an investigation, an audit, or other targeted administrative action. So, so this, um, uh, so that, that requires, so this conviction is overturned on this particular charge, um, and this narrows the category of actions that can qualify under this particular statute as, uh, um, as obstruction, uh, under the tax code. Now, there's dissent, like, as I mentioned, by Justice Thomas, and, and he argues, basically relying on the, on the plain language of this provision, that the provision applies to obstruction of the entire tax code, um, which includes routine, things like routine administration, like calculating, assessing, and collecting taxes, um, and he, he notes that, that this is kind of an odd case to, uh, to um, be lenient in this Marinello, the defendant here is particularly unsympathetic. And, uh, according to Thomas, he, he kept almost no records of the company's earnings or expenditures. He shredded or discarded most business records, paid his employees in cash, and did not give them tax documents, took tens of thousands of dollars from the company each year to pay for his personal expenses. And the IRS in this case had difficulty investigating him because they just had no information about his earnings to go on. Now, Thomas makes a number of arguments. He, he says that the, the phrase, this title, which is the language used in this uh, statute, it's regularly used to refer to the entire Internal Revenue Code, not just formal proceedings. And the administrations of the Internal Revenue Code are, that's a pretty broad phrase that's understood to refer to information gathering, assessment of tax, taxes, levying of taxes, and collection, not just formal proceedings. Um, he argues that there really isn't this redundancy with the misdemeanors that Justice Breyer refers to because they have a different state of mind requirement and that the, this, the felony obstruction provision requires a corrupt motive, which is higher and harder to prove. Um, so, and he also criticizes the majority's reading as remaining unclear. Uh, the majority doesn't explain what um, creates a sufficient nexus between someone's conduct and a proceeding, and when would a proceeding be reasonably foreseeable. So he, he rejects this uh, as... Uh, as um, as unjustified by the text of the statute um, and 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 dissented there. So uh, our final opinion of the week, uh, the other opinion that came down Wednesday, was a um, uh, opinion called Ayestas v. Davis, and this was a another a unanimous opinion. This one written by Justice Alito, uh, but there was a concurrence by Justice Sotomayor joined by Justice Ginsburg, and I'll get to that in a few moments. Um, but this is a uh, a, a uh, criminal a habeas corpus case. So Carlos Ayestas was convicted of murder during during a home invasion robbery, and he was unanimously sentenced by a jury to death. Um, in his federal habeas corpus proceeding, he argued inequa- uh, inadequate assistance of of counsel. Um, I'm sorry, ineffective assistance of counsel, arguing that his trial counsel had uh, performed an inadequate search for mitigation evidence. Now, this is uh, mitigation evidence is a broad category of any evidence that could prevent pre- be presented to a sentencing jury to um, that that might cause that jury to uh, look more leniently upon the defendant and uh, and uh, potentially um, vote against uh, sentencing them to death. Um, and the specific issues here are that that the evidence that uh, 
uh, Ayestas was mentally ill. He was later diagnosed as schizophrenic and had a long history of drug and alcohol abuse, which, uh, um, both of these, the mental illness and the, uh, the, uh, drug uh, abuse could be presented as, as potentially mitigating circumstances. Um, the issue is that these, uh, these claims, the, uh, the, ina- the inadequate assistance of the, uh, ineffective assistance of counsel argument was not made in his state habeas proceedings. Now normally there's a rule in federal habeas corpus proceedings that if uh, a claim is not raised in your state habeas corpus proceedings, it's barred from the federal habeas corpus proceedings. However, there's an exception that the Supreme Court made when the state habeas corpus counsel was also ineffective in failing to raise the trial counsel's ineffective assistance of counsel, then you can the you can then bring the case in your federal habeas corpus. It's basically to give the defendant at least one uh, opportunity to uh, effectively ar- argue ineffective assistance of counsel at trial. Make sure that at least one uh, stage along the way, they're assured by a court that there was effective counsel. Um, and um, the the specific issue here is that in the federal habeas corpus proceeding, uh, he made a motion. His attorney made a motion to the district court to to a- asking for funds. To investigate the this uh, uh, potential um, argument, the ineffective assistance of counsel, which would require investigating the um, the mentally mental illness and drug abuse issues, and 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 the the extent to which they were um, appropriately investigated by the trial counsel. And there's a the provision that allows uh, the court to provide funds for this type of thing um, is it reads like this: it says upon a finding that investigative expert or other services are reasonably necessary for the representation of the defendant, um, the court may authorize the defendant's attorney to obtain such services, etc. So the, the key language there is is uh, the, it requires the court to find that these services are reasonably necessary. Now, the, the court denied this um, finding, uh, holding that uh, to meet the standard, the, 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 he has to show that there's a substantial need for these investigative services and hadn't shown that. And also, the, the court held that he has to have a claim that isn't procedurally barred and that his ineffective assistance of counsel claim was procedurally barred because it wasn't raised in the state court hearings. So Justice Alito um, addresses each of these two points and um, and argues first that the court was wrong to uh, use the substantial needs standard and, and says that that suggests a higher standard than the actual language of this, the provision, which says that it only needs to be reasonably necessary. Um, so basically the court applied a too stringent standard here. But on the procedural bar issue, he says that this doesn't account for the court's, the exception in the court's cases when um, state habeas ineffective assistance prevented the review of the trial attorney's ineffective assistance uh, and says that given that exception that 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 uh, that the uh, this procedural bar rule isn't appropriate here because there is an opportunity potentially for this um, uh, this uh, defendant to uh, to to raise that issue to still raise that issue um, so so that's the basic decision by Justice Alito now Justice Sotomayor in her separate uh, concurrence goes much much further and she says here's a, the line from uh, the beginning of her uh, opinion she says I write separately to explain why on the record before this court there should be little doubt that Aestas has satisfied and then the provision that, that would allow for uh, the funding and uh, she then proceeds to run through the trial counsel's uh, failures in investigating mitigation and also the state uh, habeas counsel's similar failures to properly investigate and argues that uh, given the lack of any, um, just about any mitigation uh, information at all presented at trial, um, that uh, 
the, 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 there's a good argument that he was prejudiced by the lack of uh, having mitigation uh, um, evidence presented. And basically every, any effort at humanizing him in the sentencing proceeding may potentially have helped and allowed him to escape the death penalty. So, so she, she, uh, you know, argues she's basically trying to indicate how she thinks the lower court ought to come out on this issue when it goes back down to the lower court to redecide it under the proper standard. Um, so, uh, I'm going to move on now, short on time, uh, to try and cover, uh, everything I've left. Um, Next week, I mentioned the court will have five more cases that are being argued um, from Monday through Wednesday next week. So I'm going to very briefly talk about each of those five cases. Um, the the uh, first case on Monday is a case called uh, Sanchez Gomez, uh, United States v. Sanchez Gomez. And um, this this case involves a... Um, a policy that was uh, implemented by, in 2013 by the United States Marshals Service in the Southern District of California. Now, the Marshals Service provides security for federal courthouses. And the issue here was that the, their policy was that all incarcerated criminal defendants would be brought to court in full restraints for most non-jury proceedings. Now, full restraints means that they refer to it as a five-point shackling system where hands uh, the uh Defendants' hands are shackled together. Those uh, that those handcuffs are then connected to a chain around the waist, and also the legs are shackled together. Um, and the argument is that there's uh, um, security concerns at this courthouse. That there are sometimes forty to fifty criminal detainees. Um, in a single courtroom, the individual's background isn't always well known to the marshals, and the marshals are responsible for covering a number of different courtrooms simultaneously. And so, for security reasons, these detainees need to be locked up when they're uh, they're they're brought to court, and this only applies to non-jury um, proceedings, so that there isn't an issue of prejudicing the jury by seeing someone who's you know in shackles in in, uh, uh, in court. Um, the the issue that uh, that's before the court is a procedural issue. It's not it's not this uh, the um, the policy directly, but a procedural issue over whether the appeals court was allowed uh, had authority had jurisdiction to um, to review this. So this was an action brought by several individual criminal criminal defendants. It went up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which struck down this policy as a violation of due process. And the question is, did the Court of Appeals have jurisdiction to do that? And the issue here is something that's known as the final judgment rule, and that's a rule that says normally. Um, an adverse ruling in the case can't be appealed until the entire case is final. So if, if a judge rules against you on some particular issue or some particular motion, you wait until the entire uh, case is final, there's a final decision on, on the issues in the case, and then appeal the whole thing. This is supposed to prevent piecemeal uh, appeals that slow things down and kind of uh, jam up the courts with lots of issues, many of which may be irrelevant by the time the case gets over. Um, however, it's not, it's not a, there are exceptions to this rule. There's, a, there's something called the collateral order doctrine, which says that certain issues that are uh, issues that are very separate, that are distinct and separate from the main uh, issues being decided in the case that are conclusively decided and would be effectively unreviewable once the case is final can be uh, appealed even though the case isn't yet final. So that's an exception. And the issue is whether this challenge to these, this uh, shackling procedure is that type of, uh, that type of, um, collateral order that can be challenged. Um, the government argues that it, it is not that, uh, that these are the types of things that can be reviewed after final judgment if they, if they affect 
the outcome, or if they don't, then this is the type of thing. If, if it's totally independent of the outcome, it's the type of thing that a separate civil suit could address. But the defendants argue that, um, that that uh, this is exactly the type of thing that that needs to be addressed uh, through these collateral order doctrine, or else or else it will go unres- un- unaddressed, and there will be no um, no real ability to challenge it later. So that's that's the the uh, the basic issue in the case. And there's a couple other issues, side issues about whether the case is moot because the actual the individual defendant uh, criminal defendants in this case their cases have all concluded uh, most of them had guilty pleas and there was a deferred prosecution agreement for one of them so their cases are over so there's a question about whether this whole thing is mute that's uh, moot that's uh, that's in play now the second case that's going to be heard on monday is called china agritech v resh and this is another procedural case it's about a doctrine known as equitable tolling i'm going to step back real quick and and, and kind of explain what that is. The statute of limitations is a time limit on bringing a legal action. In this case, uh, this was a, um, a securities fraud claim and the, and the statute of limitations was two years. There's a two year timeline on bringing these actions. Now there's something called tolling and tolling refers to the suspension of a statute of limitation. Um, this is sometimes required by specific statutes or rules. Um, there was an opinion uh, issued just, uh, earlier, uh, Two months ago, on January 22nd, in a case called Artis v. District of Columbia that involved the tolling statute. It was an opinion specifically about tolling statute of limitations. Um, here, what's at issue is something called equitable tolling. Now, equitable tolling are kind of court-made rules to try and prevent unfairness to litigants by, uh, by in certain circumstances, tolling the statute of limitations. And one important criterion for uh, for invoking equitable tolling is that the 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 plaintiff was diligent. So a plaintiff, for one reason or another, couldn't, uh, acting diligently, couldn't have filed earlier than they did. So the court uh, tolls the statute of limitations to allow the claim to still be brought. That's that's kind of a category of, of called equitable tolling. And this is a very specific type of, of tolling called, that's known as American pipe tolling. And that's named after a 1974 case called American Piping Construction Co. v. Utah. And the issue in that case is, case is um, what the court held in that case that was it was um, when a class action is filed, the, and then later that class uh, the, the class is not certified or is decertified. Meaning, uh, so when a class action is brought, the plaintiff argues that there's a class of people who are similarly situated and that they should all be brought together and uh, into a single action that should be decided on behalf of all the people in the particular class. But there are certain requirements that have to be met in order for a class to be to be certified. That means allowed to be go forward as a class action. Now, if the class is not certified um, or certified and then decertified later, then um, then then all those people who had been would have been members of the class. They're no longer part of that action. And American pipe tolling said that those the the uh, claims uh, for those people are told. Um, during the, the time that that action is, that class action is tending. So, um, the, the idea is a class action is brought if you're someone who would be included in that class, but then sometime later, uh, the court says that that class, uh, the, it can't go forward as a class action. Well, the time when that was pending in court, that gets told so you still have your claim alive and can bring your own individual action later. Now, the issue here is, 
Um, this is the, here. The basic facts here are: this was the third consecutive class action filed against China Agritech for a particular instance of securities fraud, alleged securities fraud. Now, the first two times, uh, for for different reasons, the class action wasn't certified. So the court found that it wasn't appropriate for a class action and didn't certify it. A second class action was brought. The court again found it wasn't appropriate for class treatment and wasn't certified. A third class action was then filed, but this third class action was filed after the two-year, the expiration of the two-year statute of limitations. Now, the plaintiffs here argue that under the American pipe tolling, their claims were told um, during the, 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 while the previous two actions were pending, so they still have time left and this was timely. Um, the defendant argues that American pipe keeps alive only individual claims, not class claims. The argument here is that one of the key requirement of tolling is diligence. Um, and the American pipe kind of held that there was no, no purpose served by uh, the pl- the members of the class filing their own actions when they're included within a class action. So it didn't show that they weren't diligent um, by not filing and, 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 and so it allowed them to go later. But the argument here is that when this, third class action was filed, this this later class action after the time ran out, any people who are just swept into that third class action um, after the fact, they haven't shown any diligence and shouldn't be allowed to just be pulled in. The, the, the individuals who file the new action after the previous class actions aren't certified, they are diligent in, in, for themselves, but they have no, um, they, they can't pull in all these others. The argument on the plaintiff side is that each class member's individual claims are uh, told under the American pipe rule. And the class actions are just a procedural mechanism to unify lots of individual claims. So if they all have individual claims, there's no reason they can't be pulled together into a class action. So that's the, uh, the arguments there. So let's move on to Tuesday. We've got three cases left. I'm going to try and cover them very quickly. Tuesday, there's two cases that are uh, closely related cases. They're both about criminal resentencing. The issue here is, um, uh, these relate to the federal uh, sentencing guidelines. So uh, I've discussed this on some previous uh, uh, episodes, but many federal crimes have extremely broad statutory sentencing ranges. For example, uh, a crime might provide for zero to 20 years imprisonment. Now, there's something called the United States Sentencing Commission that creates sentencing guidelines based on the defendant's criminal history and various characteristics of specific crimes. So based on the, the details of a, the particular crime and the criminal history, you can calculate a guidelines range, which it gives you a range of months uh, for a particular uh, uh, sentence. Now, these ranges used to be mandatory, but after a Supreme Court decision called Booker, they became advisory only. Now, judges must calculate and consider these guideline ranges, but they're allowed to depart from them. They can go up or down, and, and they don't have to strictly follow these guideline ranges. The issue in this case is a provision of law. It's, it's, it's uh, called Section 3582C2. And what it says is, in the case of a defendant who has been sentenced to a term of imprisonment based on a sentencing range that has subsequently been lowered by the sentencing commission, the court may reduce the term of imprisonment after considering certain factors. So what happens is the sentencing commission uh, may uh, periodically goes back and revises its um, sentencing guidelines. And in doing so, they may um, change the range uh, that applies to certain crimes or certain conduct Um and if that results in a lower range, then defendants who are sentenced under that that range can go back and 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 request that the court resentence them. But the key, the issue here in both of these two cases is what does it mean for a sentence to be based on a sentencing range? And that can be more difficult to figure out than than you might think. So the first of the two cases is called Hughes v. United States, and it refers to something that's known as a C-type plea agreement. And this is a plea bargain, a plea agreement where the prosecutor and the defendant agree 
to the specific sentence or a sentencing range uh, that the person is going to be sentenced to. So not just pleading guilty to a charge, but agreeing to a specific range. Now, this range, uh, in order for this to, to be to go into effect, it has to be approved by the judge. But the issue is, what if someone has agreed to one of these plea bargains that, that provides particular a particular sentence or a sentencing range, and the guidelines range for their crime is later lowered? Do they do they have access to to uh, to that provision that allows them to be resentenced? Now the court dealt with this very issue uh, just a few years ago in 2011 in a case called Freeman v. United States. But in that case, the court divided three ways. It was a fractured decision. Um, four justices, the plurality, four justices said that this kind of agreement, uh, a sentence under this type of plea agreement, was based on the sentencing range when the guidelines range was part of the judge's. Um, framework in approving the agreements. When the judge relies on the guidance, the guidelines in order to approve the agreement, then that counts. Justice Sotomayor concurred, so she was with the majority on the result in that case, but had a very different reasoning. She said basically that the sentencing range, it was only based on the sentencing range when the agreement itself was expressly or clearly just from its its terms was relying on the sentencing guidelines. So she's not looking at what the judge does, she's looking at what the agreement says. Now the four Justices in the dissent said the justice, the judge's agreement is a decision is what matters, but what the judge is, uh, is basing it on is the plea agreement, not the sentencing range. So it's basically never applies uh, under the, those four justices. So the question is when you have the court is splintered like this, what's the precedent and what, what, what counts? Well, the answer is the, the standard answer is there's a case from 1977 called Marx v. United States, and there's something that's come out of that case known as the Marx rule. And what that rule says is when no single rationale um, explaining the result gets five votes on the court, then, and this is the quote, the position taken by those members who concurred in the judgment on the narrowest grounds is considered the binding precedent. Um, unfortunately, this is, is, uh, th- th- this has proved to be, uh, easier said than done. And what is the narrowest grounds that's not explained by the Marx opinion and lower courts have differed in what that should mean and how to apply the narrowest grounds tests. And it results in a lot of strange puzzles and, and oddities in how to apply these fractured decisions. Um, and it's been a highly criticized rule over the years. The Supreme Court, even though this rule has been around for 40 years, the Supreme Court hasn't really clarified how it's supposed to work. Now, when you think about it, this makes sense. The Supreme Court isn't bound by its own precedents. The court can always over rule a previous court decision, even in a unanimous decision, can later be overruled. So what ends up happening is when one of these fractured precedents returns to the Supreme Court, the court usually just ends up redeciding the underlying legal question and doesn't address what was the right marks result under those previous decision. It just redecides it and says it sets a new legal standard. Occasionally the marks rule makes an appearance in a brief appearance in Supreme Court opinions, but usually it's different justices uh, disagreeing in a splintered case about whose opinion ought to be considered controlling. And it doesn't really clarify things, but in this case, the court specifically included in the issues it was going to hear in this case, um, this marks question of, of how to determine the, the marks rule. Um, now, this particular case, it's very similar to the Freeman case that I just I just uh, mentioned with the C-type um, uh, uh, plea agreement. Um, but but the facts here are that here the judge considered the sentencing range in approving the plea agreement, so that would fit under the the four justice plurality. 
but the agreement itself didn't explicitly rely on the sentencing range. So under Justice Sotomayor's uh, test, this this wouldn't qualify. So the issue here is if you if Justice Sotomayor's con- concurrence is considered the narrowest ground under the Marx rule, then the defendant loses. So the defendant is challenging this interpretation of the Marx rule. Um, and so the big question is here: here is will the court revisit this Marx rule? Um, the only change on the court uh, since this, uh, since Freeman, the, the splintered case, is the replacement of Justice Scalia with Justice Gorsuch. It's not clear how this will affect, uh, you know, where he would necessarily fall on this. Um, he, 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 he could change the, uh, the, uh, the, the balance on that, the 414 division, uh, on those positions, but, but it's unknown at this point. Um, but the, the question is, which is harder for the court to, uh, find a five justice majority on what the standard should actually be in these situations or finding a five justice majority that can agree to how the Marx rule should actually apply. Uh, so it's, it's not a given that the court will actually give us any clarity on, on, on the Marx rule. They may just skip that and try and decide the uh, underlying legal question, but it remains to be seen. So the other case being heard the same day that also involves the same resentencing issue, uh, the facts are a little bit different. So in that case, there were five defendants who all received very lengthy, uh, drug sentences. Um, now these lengthy sentences, uh, also had attached to them mandatory minimums. Most of them included uh, had 20-year mandatory minimums. And the mandatory minimums were longer than the guidelines ranges that they would have received for these crimes. So to give an example, if a particular defendant under the sentencing guidelines would have received maybe 15 to 18 years, but they had a 20-year mandatory minimum, then that kind of takes precedence over the guideline calculation. However, each of these five defendants qualified for this kind of an escape hatch in the sentencing scheme for uh, people who provide substantial cooperation to the government um, in, uh, in in the government's uh, you know, investigations in these drug um, uh, drug conspiracies and things like that. And when someone qualifies for this cooperation escape hatch, that uh, allows them to be sentenced below the mandatory minimum. So the mandatory minimum is no longer mandatory in that particular case. So what happened in each of these cases was the judge calculated the sentencing range then determined that the mandatory minimum was higher, so bumped it up to the mandatory minimum, but then determined that the person was uh, entitled to a sentence discount due to cooperation, uh, and the discounts varied uh, It was uh, from defendant to defendant, so they made it decide the defendant deserves a 25% discount or a 40% discount or some amount, and then discounted that time off of the mandatory minimum sentence. So it started with, say, that 20-year baseline mandatory minimum and then chopped off, say, 25 or 30% for cooperation. Now, what happened, though, is the underlying range was later lowered by the Sentencing Commission. So that range that, say, gave the person 15 to 18 years was lowered, and maybe they got, say, 12 to 15 years instead. But the Sentencing Commission, in doing that, also instructed courts in in resentencing to resentence without consideration of the mandatory minimum when they're deciding when someone qualifies for this escape hatch, reconsider without considering the mandatory minimum. So... Um, this would this would result if if you're if you're just resentencing from scratch, starting from scratch, uh, it would result in uh, potentially result in substantially shorter sentences. But the government argues this just doesn't fit into this resentencing scheme. They say that the original sentence was not based on the sentencing range that's been reduced. Now, the statutory language, which I read earlier, I'll read it again. It says, in the case of a defendant who has been sentenced to a term of imprisonment based on a sentencing range that has subsequently been lowered by the sentencing commission. Now. The government says that's just not what's happening in this case. They weren't sentenced based on a sentencing range that's been subsequently lowered. They were sentenced based on a mandatory minimum, which hasn't changed. So this just doesn't apply. So the 
that's the issue that the court's going to address there. The last case, which I'm going to talk about very briefly, Wednesday, the court will be hearing a case called Benesek v. Limon, and this is a partisan gerrymandering case out of Maryland. Now, the court already heard argument in one partisan gerrymandering case this year. That was a case called Gilvey Whitford out of Wisconsin that was heard. It was argued in the first week of arguments of the term way back in October, and the uh, uh, court has not yet issued any opinions on that. Um, but this uh, Maryland case, it's uh, different in certain ways. There's there's a couple some factual differences. Um, the the Wisconsin gerrymandering was it was the Republicans who had gerrymandered to uh, to uh, to their advantage to control more districts. And Maryland, it's the Democrats who had gerrymandered. Now, um, if you gerrymandering is generally this type of partisan gerrymandering is only um, possible when a state is controlled, the the legislature and the both houses of the legislature and the governor are all controlled by a single party. And that's, uh, if, if you know much about political geography of the United States, that's uh, there are many more states that are controlled across the board by Republicans than Democrats. So um, these type of uh, gerrymandering uh, um, concerns are more, uh, more usually um, directed against a uh, uh, alleged uh, Republican gerrymanders, but in states that have full Democratic control, there, are, there also have been uh, you know, similar um, claims in those, and Maryland is an example of that. Um, Wisconsin was an interesting case because Wisconsin had involved the use of uh, very sophisticated redistricting technology that allowed the Republicans to, uh, to basically um, gain a, a very substantial electoral major- um, uh, advantage in the redistricting process while still creating districts that fulfilled typical um, districting criteria. They were compact um, districts that respected local political boundaries and didn't look like these crazy extended uh, um, uh, districts that kind of um, have, that are the kind of poster children for the worst uh, gerrymandering. Um, Maryland does have some of the more obviously manipulated districts. It isn't quite the same situation, but those are just some kind of factual dif- differences. But it, more significantly, there's some major legal differences in the specific claims that are being made. Wisconsin was kind of a standard equal protection argument similar to claims that are routinely made of racial gerrymandering. Um, but the key thing in Wisconsin was that the the uh, the challengers to the um, the gerrymandering in in Wisconsin were arguing that the court should decide the case according to um, certain tests proposed by political scientists that kind of generally fall under uh, um, uh, a category called partisan symmetry tests. They're tests that would show what uh, that would that would uh, were supposed to demonstrate whether um, electoral districts had been tilted too much toward one party or another. Um, and and these tests are highly contested and 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 very uh, uh, have been. Uh, um, a, a lot of arguments back and forth about about whether they're 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 really reliable or they're too manipulable. Manipulable, um, but Maryland, uh, the challengers in Maryland took a very different tact. In Maryland, the the claim that was brought is a First Amendment retaliation argument. So the argument here is by disadvantaging voters specifically on the base of their their party affiliation or prior voting history. Um, that's retaliating against someone for their First Amendment activities. Membership in a political party is classic protected First Amendment activity. And so the argument is that this is just purely based on the intent of the lawmakers. If the lawmakers are deliberately designing districts in a way that it disadvantages people because they belong to a particular party or because they tend to vote for a particular party's candidates, then that's a retaliation on the basis of the First Amendment. Um, and, and so the court took up this case also, um, to, uh, 
with, with these, these different arguments. Now, as I mentioned, the Gilvey Whitford, the Wisconsin case was uh, argued back in October, uh, but it still hasn't come out. Um, it, it's, uh, it, a lot of people speculate that, that these two cases will probably be released together because there will be so much overlap between the discussions and what the court decides in the two. So a lot of people don't expect Gil for a while yet, um, until the court is ready to decide Benesek after it's argued the Maryland case. Um, but, but, you know, that's just speculation. No one knows for sure. It's also a lot of speculation about why the court took the Benesic case after already um, having the Gill case on its docket. Um, one one reason could just be that the that members of the court thought that this political this uh, I'm sorry this First Amendment argument was a, just a better theory um, than than the uh, um, these political symmetry equal protection arguments that were made in the Wisconsin case, and they wanted to get a case that really squarely presented that First Amendment claim. Um, but there's also a possibility that there was some. Uh, it's just been speculation that there's kind of partisan optics in play that the Wisconsin case involves um, uh, overturning a map that advantaged Republicans and that uh, maybe there are members of the court that would like to have a case that has the reverse on there so that it, um, if they decide both of these cases in this, the, the same way, striking down um, the maps in both cases, um, they can uh, at least it, it'll uh, uh, have better partisan optics of not this, uh favoring one side over the other. Um, but, but uh, that, again, all just speculation. Um, one thing I found uh, very interesting in this case, there was an amicus brief filed by Wisconsin in this case. Now, Wisconsin is the state um, that is defending its uh, gerrymander, uh, uh, you know, its, its districts in the Gilvey-Whitford case. And in the Wisconsin brief, as you might expect, it criticizes the, the proposed First Amendment challenge in the Maryland case. But then it goes on with a fairly lengthy discussion of why, um, despite its criticisms of that approach, it thinks that the First Amendment approach in the Maryland case is a much better approach to political gerrymandering than the partisan symmetry approach being advocated in Wisconsin. It'll be interesting to see whether any of the justices um, seize on that distinction and find more, um, uh, uh, more, uh, more to like in that, in that, uh, First Amendment approach. Um, so that uh, that's it for uh, uh, for this week. That sums up the uh, case we'll have uh, next week, and that brings me to the end of the live stream episode. Our next live stream will be a week from today, Thursday, March 29th at 9 p.m. Eastern time. That's our usual time, Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. But you can also always check the Counting to Five YouTube channel to see when the next scheduled live stream is. Um, next week's live stream, there's a, there's the court tomorrow, that's Friday, March 23rd, the court has its uh, weekly conference, and so an orders list will be expected Monday morning at 9.30 before the uh, um, 10 o'clock oral arguments. And that could, uh, as always, the orders list could include new cert grants or other interesting orders, and we'll cover those if they come up. There also could be some more opinions uh, in argued cases next week. Again, there's a lot of opinions still to come uh, this term, so we could get some more of those. Um, if so, those opinions would most likely come down Tuesday or Wednesday at 10 o'clock right before our oral argument. That's the typical approach. Um, and there is currently, there's one execution scheduled March 27th, so that'll also uh, uh, have likely last-minute uh, stay applications. And um, as always, there's always a possibility of emergency orders or other interesting developments. So that's uh, that's what's likely on tap for next week's live stream. Whether you're watching on YouTube or listening to the audio podcast, I'd love your feedback. You can leave comments on the show notes at countingtofive.com, on the Counting to Five YouTube channel or Facebook page. You can tweet at Counting to Five or send an email to mike at countingtofive.com. Please subscribe to the Counting to Five YouTube channel or audio podcast to make sure you don't miss future episodes. 
and thank you for listening. This has been Counting to Five.